Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in as we continue our 2022 SEC Comment Letter Trend Series. This week, we're all about revenue, which holds the number five spot as we count down the comment letter trends. Avoid generic disclosures. Um, you know, again, avoid simply restating the guidance without explaining you know, how it's actually been applied in the company's specific facts and circumstances. That was Angela Ferguson, a partner in the national office, here to break down what areas of revenue recognition are receiving more focus in comment letters. She'll also cover other frequent areas of judgment, comments on industry-specific arrangements, and, of course, we'll wrap up with some practical advice you'll want to tune in for. She's got a lot to cover, so let's get started. Angela, welcome back to the podcast. So nice to have you on again. And a topic I know we've talked about before, but always good to remind people, and that's talking about overall comment letter trends specifically related to revenue recognition. Uh, I know myself, there's, I think, at least one change from the past where I feel like it's dropped a little in number of comments, but what are some of the big picture things we've seen? Sure. And nice to be back, Heather. Um, Yeah, you're right. So revenue, I believe, came out number five in our list of comment letter trends. And that's a couple spots lower than we saw, say, a year ago. Um, I'd say that's not surprising to me because... We continue to get further away from when companies adopted the new revenue standard ASC 606. And that's when a lot of new disclosures had to be added to financial statements. So there was definitely an uptick shortly after that was adopted with all these new disclosures. And now we're starting to normalize as we get further away from that adoption. Um, And also the staff is just, you know, there's other areas that they're focusing on. So things like climate disclosures are, are getting a little more focus than um, other topics. So I think that's the reason why we're seeing a drop a little, but I would expect that revenue is always going to be, you know, up there, right? In the top, top five, top 10, maybe, because it's just always going to be an area of focus given how important it is to a company's business and to the users of the financial statements. Well, and I think, Angela, even to that point, no matter how many times I've had you on the podcast talking about some of the revenue provisions, I mean, some of them are complicated. So I do think, uh, given the prominence on the face of the income statement, some of the complications, and then we know even people's contracts can be complicated. There's lots of things for the staff to comment on. Yeah, absolutely. Really good points. Yeah. So what types of high-level things are we seeing? Same types of comments are different from what we've seen in the past? Well, the types of comments are pretty similar if you're just thinking of what are they asking. And I'd, I'd say it's, number one, they're either looking for clarification about the company's revenue policy because the disclosures aren't clear or maybe they're too generic or boilerplate. Um, the second type of comment would be the staff saying, hey, I think you're missing some disclosures. So maybe it's completeness of meeting all of the disclosure requirements. And that's especially common with new registrants. So we see that with like comments on registration statements where the staff may be observing that 
they're not including all of the required disclosures. And then the third type of comment is where the staff is observing what they think is potentially an inconsistency between what the company is disclosing in their revenue policy and either what they've talked about elsewhere in the filing document or what information the staff has seen outside of the filing, such as on the company's website or earnings calls or other information that's uh, being provided to investors. All right. So Angela, the other question I have before we get into some of the details is one of the things I've been talking about with Kyle Moffat, who's on last week kicking off the series, is just that we're starting to see trickle in to the comment letter themes, uh, comments on the current economic factors. So things like inflation, supply chain, maybe interest rates. And just curious if you're seeing any of that manifest itself in the revenue comments or not directly. I'd say not directly. You know, I haven't seen it as a theme specifically for comments on revenue recognition or revenue disclosures. But you know, we certainly have seen the staff ask companies to provide more information about current economic factors such as inflation, supply chain constraints, and how they're impacting the company's operations. And one aspect of this would be impacts on customer pricing, which obviously impacts revenue as well as related accounts like cost of revenue, inventory, receivables. But generally, this is more of a comment on the company's MD&A or their um, risk factors, for example. So I certainly would send people to your podcast with Kyle to to get more um, information on those types of comments. Perfect. And then we actually in the series later, I think in December, uh, Pat Durbin will be back and talking specifically about some of what we are seeing in those comments, some more to come. So then Angela, let me go back specifically to revenue. And I know you said some of these trends are the same as what we've seen in the past or generally in the past, but any specific topics, um, either within revenue itself or perhaps specific disclosures that you're seeing get more focused um, in you know recent periods? There's two areas that I would highlight um, as where I'm seeing a little bit of an uptick in comments. So one would be disaggregated revenue disclosures. And the second is presentation of revenue on the face of the income statement. So starting with disaggregated revenue disclosures, as a reminder, companies are required to provide disclosures of revenue disaggregated into categories. But the guidance doesn't specify which categories to use. That's a matter of company judgment. So the guidance talks about things to consider. Um, This this includes disclosures that are presented outside of the financial statements. For example, earnings releases, um, annual reports, and investor presentations. And you are also supposed to look to information that's regularly reviewed by the chief operating decision maker or CODM, which is similar to what we think about for segment disclosures. And then also just any other information that the the company uses or users of the company's financial statements use to evaluate financial performance. So it's very judgmental you know, along those lines of which categories that the company should use um, to do the disaggregated revenue disclosures. So when the staff is commenting on this area, they're usually asking the company to explain their judgments around which categories they're using. 
And then they also will ask about specific categories that aren't included. And often this is in reference to other information the staff has seen in the filing and uh, or, or on the company's website. And they're linking that to what they expect the company would include in the disclosure. So just to give an example, if the company is discussing sales in different sales channels, for example, in the business section of their 10K, the staff might ask if they considered disaggregating by sales channel in the disaggregated revenue footnote. Um, other topics or other categories I've seen the staff specifically ask about include disaggregation by type of offering or type of customer, and also disaggregating by revenue recognized at a point in time versus revenue recognized over time. So Angela, this may be uh, too simplistic. I'm sure you're going to tell me it is, but is there any sort of expected range in terms of, oh, you know, you need to have at least two categories or you don't need more than 10 categories, or I expect your answer is going to be really depends on the company and all the factors you just talked about. It, it certainly depends. I mean, you would guess similar to segments, if you only have one category that that may <laughs> cause the staff to ask if, if the company considered more, but that doesn't necessarily mean that only, you know, one or two categories is, is, um, you know, wrong. Okay. So then Angela, other question I have that I think is always the question with uh, this topic is then when we see these types of comments, how typically, what type of resolution do they normally have? Well, it's going to go one of two ways. I mean, the company will either resolve the comment by explaining their judgments and why they decided on including the categories that they have included. Um, and that resolves the issue or the company may decide um, to add additional categories as a result of the SEC's comments. All right. That's helpful. So then uh, you also mentioned in trends presentation on the face of the income statement, which I personally thought was very interesting. So what are we seeing there? So the revenue guidance in ASC 606 does not specifically address presentation on the face of the income statement. However, SEC guidance, uh, Regulation SX, Rule 503B, for those taking notes, yep. <laughs> does explicitly require separately reporting certain categories of revenue, including revenue from tangible products and revenue from services, if they are greater than 10% of total revenue. So the staff may note that a company uh, has both product and service offerings, but uh, only one revenue line item on their income statement. And then that could prompt a question about whether the company is in compliance with this SX requirement. Uh, we've also seen the staff ask companies to present revenue from licensing software that's recognized at a point in time separately from revenue from services that are recognized over time. So that has been a little bit of a theme. Um, and on a related note, we've definitely seen an increase in comments from the staff on cost of revenue. And similar to the requirement to show 
categories of revenue, you also have to show the same categories of cost of revenue. So cost of tangible products and cost of services separately. The staff has also asked about the completeness of cost of revenue. For example, if a technology company operates an online platform, they might ask if cost of revenue includes the cost of operating and maintaining that platform. Seem to remember that's something we talked about last year. And I know this is something we've even done a separate podcast on, but what guidance should be companies be looking to in this area? Well, one of the challenges is that this is an area where there's not a lot of specific guidance. So as far as what needs to be included in cost of sales, and this is especially true if you're talking about companies that don't sell a tangible product, so companies that sell services. And generally, the concept is that you should include costs that are associated with generating revenue. And this could include both direct and indirect costs. For companies that sell services, not products, you can still look to the guidance on inventory by analogy to think of what types of costs you might you might include. But at the end of the day, I mean, there's some diversity in practice and there's going to be some judgment required. So it's really important to have a thoughtful approach and policy about what's included in cost of revenue and then combine that with clear, transparent disclosure about your policy. We've also seen specifically comments about compliance with SAB topic 11B. And this is guidance that requires certain disclosures if depreciation and amortization are being excluded from cost of revenue. So that's something to be uh, aware of. Um, The other point I'd make is that questions about cost of revenue often come up in tandem with questions about non-GAAP measures. And this is because some non-GAAP measures are reconciled to GAAP gross margin. So for example, contribution margin is a non-GAAP measure that some companies use, and that gets reconciled to GAAP gross margin. And when the staff starts asking questions about the non-GAAP measure, it can often bring up questions about the GAAP gross margin and then put a little more focus on how that's being calculated as well. All right. Good reminder there. And that's a topic we also will be covering uh, next month uh, with some reminders on non-GAAP revenue. I feel like that can lead to a lot of additional questions, including this one that you just highlighted. Uh, Angela, the other thing I have a question about that I'm actually shocked has not come up yet is that we've been talking about revenue for this long. And you haven't mentioned gross versus net, principal versus agent, because I feel like that's always a topic of discussion. So is that something that we've seen come up again this year? Yes, absolutely. I mean, similar to past years, um, gross versus net is another area of focus. And then I'd also throw in that oldie but goodie category, you know, identifying performance obligations. Oh, that was my next question. Perfect. Okay. (laughs) So starting with with gross versus net, um, or also called principal versus agent, you know, this is an area where significant judgments required, and it can have a, a very significant impact to what's presented on the top line. So 
it is still an area where we see a number of comments. Um, and in some instances, the staff has asked for the company's detailed analysis of how they um, came to their conclusions under the principal versus agent guidance. And that may be because the company's disclosures aren't clear about how they came to their conclusions, or perhaps because the staff believes their conclusion appears different from um, peer group or other companies with similar business models. So I'd always emphasize that this is an area where it's important to have transparent disclosure about the, the judgments that the company reached. Well, I also think, Angela, anytime we're talking about something like this, it's also going to be important for the company to make sure it has good documentation of what it's doing, why it's, you know, why it's presented things the way it has or otherwise, because these questions are always going to be easier if you can pull some memos out to talk about it. Oh, absolutely. You don't want the first time you're putting together your analysis to be in response to an SEC comment. No, no, no. Sure. I, I, I have seen that a time or two and it's de- never the best situation. So, all right. And then let's go back because you mentioned you threw in performance obligations. And as I said, that was next on my list. Uh, so what are we seeing there? Yeah, I mean, identifying performance obligations is also an area where there's a lot of judgment required. Um, and just as a reminder, the uh, performance obligations are the deliverables or units of ac- units of account within customer contracts. And that's what's used as uh, the basis for applying the revenue guidance. Um, and again, comments in this area are typically um, because the disclosures just aren't clear. Um, that's you can't really tell from the disclosures what the company concluded its performance obligations are to their customers. Um, this is also an area where uh, the staff may um, ask about perceived inconsistencies with other information. So like perhaps a disconnect between how offerings are being described in the business section and then what the companies included in their policy footnote. We've also seen um, you know, one scenario where I've seen the staff ask for more information is when a company has concluded that multiple goods and services are all being combined into just one single performance obligation. And this isn't necessarily uh, a, a wrong conclusion, but it, it's perhaps less common to conclude everything's combined. So the staff may ask questions just to better understand how the company came to that conclusion. All right. Another good plug for a good documentation of your accounting conclusions. So then Angela, one of the things I feel like is even maybe in revenue, even more so than other areas, we always have questions about if there's anything industry specific, because there can be such specific revenue issues associated with different industries. So anything to note from a comment letter perspective, when we think, you know, um, specific industries? Um, sure. There's a few that I would that I would note. So starting with um, health industries, um, in this industry, it's common to have arrangements that include licenses of intellectual property along with other types of services, and they often include variable fees like milestone payments. So, and these can be very complex arrangements. So, in this area, we see the staff asking questions about how the company identified its performance obligations, 
for example, is the license of IP distinct from other services that are being provided? And they also ask about how the company determined the transaction price. And that would have a focus on the estimate of those variable fees and how they impact variable consideration. The second I'd highlight is for industrial products. And in, in this industry, we commonly see questions about accounting for warranties, um, estimates of returns, and sales incentives. So that's probably not too surprising considered, considering the types of arrangements you might see in this industry. And this is also a situation where we see the staff ask about the, that disaggregated revenue disclosure because there's often different offerings being provided to customers or different sales channels. And those might be categories that the staff would be looking for in the footnote. The last one I'll, I'll note is um, technology industry. And this is another one where identifying performance obligations is a common area that the staff focuses on. And especially, again, when the arrangement includes a license, because <laughs> this one favorite area and a challenging area for um, identifying whether or not the license is distinct. And I'd also say this is an industry where companies sometimes use uh, a term like subscription to describe their arrangements, but it's not that clear whether the company is actually providing a license to um, IP or just providing a service. And so the staff will um, ask questions about that. Um, and then lastly, in, in technology, principal versus agent is a, a common topic uh, because of the, the business models in this industry often include things like providing goods and services on an online platform. And that will often raise principal agent questions. All right. Definitely good reminders there. So Angela, when we started things off, you made a point that it's been a few years since people adopted the revenue standard. And just taking a step back, if you think about either these trends or even more broadly questions that you're seeing or areas where you're still seeing you know, companies may be struggling with some of the guidance. What kind of advice would you give our listeners, particularly as they look ahead to their year-end reporting and disclosure? Well, it's uh, worth repeating. I know I always give this advice, but um, to avoid generic disclosures, um, you know, again, avoid simply restating the guidance without explaining how it's actually been applied in the company's specific facts and circumstances. So the more specific you can be to the company's um, revenue transactions, I think the, the better that a user can understand the company's business and, and you know, how they've applied the guidance. So that's always recommended. Um, thinking about... The, the current economic environment, um, you know, I've received plenty of questions from companies that are modifying contracts. And so I would just highlight that if you are modifying contracts, especially due to current economic fact factors, that's something um, that you should have transparent disclosure about how those modifications impact revenue um, and if material, and how any key, key judgments were made in accounting for those modifications. 
Well, and probably revisiting that guidance. And I believe you've had at least one past podcast on that topic. So we can include that in the show notes of people need a refresher. I'm sure there's one or two we can dig up. (laughs) Yes, at least. So, all right. Well, Angela, it's always such a pleasure to have you on, but I'm not going to let you go without asking you two questions to try to stump you. And I believe last time you were on, you showed your knowledge of pop culture, which is great. Today, we're going to ask to see how much revenue uh, trivia, you know, so we'll, we'll see. I do have a multiple choice, at least for the first one that could help. Uh, And I think you were personally involved with this, so that may also help. But how many issues did the Revenue Recognition Transition Resource Group, so TRG, discuss at its joint TRG meetings between 2014 and 2016 related to 606 implementation issues? And I have a hint if you need one, but if you just want to tell me directly, that's good too. Oh, it's, it's about 60 um, wow. So it's like you studied, Angela, but <laughs> <laughs> do you want, do you want to quickly share your, cause you were involved in this, right? Uh, yeah, I actually attended the, I attended one of the meetings, um, but uh, definitely prepped for all of them and, and was intimately involved. So that number was not hard to come up with. <laughs> yeah. So you, there were 59, so I would okay. call 60, definitely uh, almost correct. And there are actually 97 submissions that had come in as of September, 2016, but 59 of those were discussed at the meetings and many of which resulted in amendments to the guidance. And then the rest, you know, the the information discussed was shared directly with stakeholders. And I know from dealing with my own clients, very helpful. So thank you for your contribution to that, Angela. Now, this one, I think you're going to know too, but uh, let's see. So of all those issues, what was sort of the top trending issue that was most discussed? Most discussed? Well, I it will probably be some some something around principal versus agent or identifying performance obligations. Yep, you are correct. It was the latter. So identify performance obligations. And uh, that resulted in a targeted amendment uh, to clarify the application of the separately identifiable notion. And then at least from um, the producers, they say as close second place was determining the transaction price. So I guess those are two areas that I think were relatively new for people compared to some of the old guidance. So perhaps that's uh, why so many questions. So yeah, there were a lot of questions around variable consideration. So that would make sense. There you go. All right. Well, Angela, as always, such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.